Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you along with Dr. Andrew Silverman, author of A Burst of Conscious Light. And even though we're talking somewhat about the Shroud of Turin, we're also talking about near-death experiences and the power of consciousness. When you were at the conference of the Society for Scientific Exploration, uh, Andrew, and you were talking about the nature of consciousness, what was the consensus? What did they believe consciousness was? Something outside of the brain? Well, of course, different people held uh, different views on that. The theme that I was talking about was why, logically, you can never manufacture consciousness, that there's no such thing as artificial intelligence, artificial sentience. Because, you see, what consciousness implies is that which can be aware, can perceive information, and you can't make that out of information. You can't get a string of ones and zeros that's sufficiently complex that suddenly that set of numbers wakes up and becomes someone rather than something. It will always be something. There's never anything, as one would say, that it is like to be those numbers because you can't be them as a, as a sentient entity. They're just, all they are is just, is just information. And so the, the, what I was talking about was the, the dangers of, of this belief that you can, make, you can manufacture consciousness because people uh, are clinging to this notion of mind uploading, for example, and, and transhumanism and all these things that sees consciousness as just data, just information. And the book explains how, how that's completely upside down, that it's, it's, it's not anything of the sort. Extrasensory perception, mind over matter, of course, uh, has been something we've talked about on this program for some time now. It is truly remarkable how it works and what it is. And again, here's something that some people would say, no, this originates in the brain. I think it happens outside of the brain, don't you? Yes. In fact, the, the point that I, that I make is that, and I'm, I, I said this because when I was a, a student, the, there was the first just appointed uh, professor of, uh, of parapsychology came to uh, do a, a talk uh, at my uh, university. I think it was in the late 1980s. And um, I was talking to him and I said, the, the, as I see it, you know, the, the parapsychologists, they put loads of effort into testing whether there is such a thing as extrasensory perception and mind over matter. But as far as I can see, it's we don't need to, to test whether it exists because we are it. Because if you think about it logically, all perception, everything that we perceive is beyond the senses because otherwise a camera would be able to experience what it's, taking a, what it's filming, what it's taking a picture of. The, the eye and the brain simply process information and that's the senses is, is how that information is transferred from, from what you see to, what, to the signals that go to the brain. But then the mind perceives that and that's beyond the senses. So all perception is extrasensory. And then if there is such a thing as free will, and I present the evidence in the, the book why I say that there is, and, this, and including evidence from, from physics, if there is such a thing as free will, then that means that mind over matter is happening every single time you make a decision. So it's not just that extrasensory perception and mind over matter are, are real, but they're 
there every every single moment of our of our existence is in, involves extrasensory perception and, and mind over matter. There are some Andrew who are concerned about artificial intelligence. They're downright scared about it. You're not. You don't think it's going to be a big case or a big issue, do you? Um, well, actually, I, I, it's not about so much about fear, but actually, I do think artificial. I think artificial intelligence will never be intelligent in the sense of being conscious. But I do believe it's extremely dangerous. In fact, I think that it's actually what is most like, and this is not just something that I'm saying, this is something that's coming from uh, big research institutes in, in, in Oxford and Cambridge in the UK. There's the Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford and the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk in Cambridge. And many people from, from those organisations have said that, that they think that the most likely thing to, to, to end human existence is unanticipated consequences of technology. For example, you have things like autonomous weapons, and then people may come up with an AI program that uh, they, they have robots or, or whatever you call them to, to try to prevent human suffering. And what many scholars have pointed out is that because a machine can never have a concept of what a person even is or what life means, then to, to a machine... The, the most efficient way to prevent human suffering is just to wipe out human beings because if there's no human beings, there's no suffering. So that, that type of, of thing, if you like, the, the unanticipated consequences could be deadly. In fact, the uh, astronomer royal in the UK, uh, Lord Martin Rees, wrote a book called Our Final Century, talking about the 21st century, whether it, that might actually... Uh, that if you consider the the chance of, of, for example, extraterrestrial uh, beings, extraterrestrial intelligence. People like Martin Rees and Stephen Hawking pointed out that if there were life on other planets, it's very unlikely if we ever see evidence of it that what we'll see is something living, something sentient like us, because the time when you have technology with living, sentient, conscious being is probably quite short because quite quickly it tends to get replaced by machines. And so that's the, that's the worry is that humanity may become replaced. But, and so I think there is, there is great danger in artificial intelligence, despite the fact that it's never really intelligent and, and partly because of that, that because it's never going to be conscious, it can never have conscience. What do you believe, Andrew, about time travel? Conceivable in the future? Well, uh, you know, um, Erwin Schrödinger, who I mentioned before, the uh, quantum physicist, made the point that that mind, as consciousness, is is always now, and the present is the only thing that has that has no end. You see, if I actually, um, I believe that everything exists within the within the, the now the present and the the past exists as what's gone to make up the nature of what currently is and the future is the potential within what is and it's actually free will that chooses between those those potentials ultimately usually the indirect action of free will i make a, a illustration of that that for example if a butterfly flapping its wings causes a storm the butterfly it might choose to flap its wings, but it doesn't choose to make the storm. So most of the consequences of, of choices are not, are not chosen directly in that sense. But because of free will, 
it, it, I believe that it's actually not possible to travel backwards in time. Travel backwards in time. We will not ever yeah. be able to do that. No. In fact, we don't actually travel in time at all. We're, we're always, whatever happens, we're always in the now. Einstein showed that the, the rate of clocks can vary depending on, on, on how you're moving relative to other things and, and mass and so on. But it's only a rate, of, a rate of change. But always the consciousness is always in the moment, in, in the now. So what you're saying, though, is we'll never be able to go back to see Jesus and the Shroud of Turin live well in a sense in a sense i would say that the the image on the the turin shroud is showing us what happened in that in that moment and in that moment where atoms became became light that in a sense he was he was transcending time so that all of that moment is still is still now in fact all all moments that conscious beings have ever been is still now, so it it can be it can be experienced, but you could never go back there in a sense to to change the past. Andrew, what do you think this burst of energy that was emitted from the body might have been? What was it? Well, basically, it seems from the from the experiments that have been done in Frascati at the Atomic Energy Institute that there was a burst of ultraviolet light that actually formed the image but i think that was just just a part of what was happening and it uh, from all the research that i have done i believe that what was actually happening there was the same light that people perceive in in the near death experiences was actually happening if you like in within this this realm of of space and time at that point in 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 jerusalem that and that that light that everyone sees at the point of death is something that is accessible to, to all human beings. Was there indeed a resurrection, in your opinion? It does look like it, there was, actually. Just just looking at the—and I, I don't say this from any particular religious perspective. I don't even come from a, from a, from a Christian background, but it just seems that there's some because there was some uh, great research done by a, a physician in the states uh, uh, dr gilbert lavoy and i went to his um lecture in uh, in uh, he was lecturing in frascati at the same event where i was lecturing and he presented evidence that totally changed my outlook on on the shroud image because he pointed out that actually what we're seeing on the shroud image is evidence of an upright man that if you look at the the hair, it's actually not behind the body. It's actually hanging down on the shoulders. And if you look at the image of the back of the body, it's not flattened. The the muscles of the buttocks and the calves and so on aren't flattened. Now, even if there were rigor mortis still there, and rigor mortis goes away after about 24 hours, but even if there were, that wouldn't have stopped the the flattening uh, from happen because it doesn't affect the tissues between the skin and the muscle. So it looks like he was upright. So people wonder, well, was he was he standing? But actually, if you look at the position of the feet, it looks more as though he was actually the body was actually levitated. It was suspended in in the air. Strange as that may seem, that's what hmm. the physical empirical evidence on the Turin shroud is suggesting. Now the eyes are closed. Why? 
Well, we, we can't actually see for sure whether the, the eyes are closed within the, the resolution of the, of the image. But yes, it, it does look as though the eyes are closed. But I, I wouldn't have been surprised if, if after that moment they were, they were open because there, there are, of course, as you know, um, sort of records of people having, having met him after after the event, and in fact, very soon after it, when after they came and found that the the tomb was empty and just the the shroud was left there, are we dealing with souls here, Andrew? Some kind of electromagnetic soul? Well, you know, I don't actually. the The word soul doesn't actually uh, figure in the book because I, it to me it has con- connotations of something that's that's made or or created. And I, I believe we don't have a, a, a beginning. Uh, I believe we, we go right back to beyond the Big Bang, as it were. And I don't believe that consciousness can ever be made from anything physical. So it's more than electromagnetic, because even electromagnetic is something material, if you like. So, and people often say, you know, how would you actually define then what consciousness is? And that's an interesting point because when we make a definition, we're always comparing something to to something else. So you could say an apple is a fruit, so people know it's like other fruits. Or when people say, what do you mean the sky is blue? Oh, it's blue because it looks like something else that's blue. But with consciousness, there's nothing else to compare it to because consciousness isn't the content of our isn't just the content of our perception. Consciousness is the screen, if you like, the space within which we are we are aware. So we all know what it is to be conscious because we're all conscious, but you can't actually define it in terms of anything else. And definitely you can't summarize it in terms of being a product of anything material because it isn't. Do you believe, Andrew, that uh, at the time of death, we all go through what happened to the Shroud of Turin, some kind of burst of energy and something like that happens to all of us? Well, the, the Shroud of Turin was quite a unique event because that was the actual atoms of the body that were the were the light was released as the as the atoms in the that body changed, I'm suggesting. But what happens when when we die generally is that we're the body is just like a, a shell, if you like, that we're within, in the sense that, or or operating through, just like if you like a a radio when you you turn it on and you hear a song, the radio isn't isn't singing that song to you. So I, I believe that. Well, in fact, there is evidence from scientific studies. Uh, Dr. Pim van Lommel. Uh, cardiologist wrote a, a study in the the Lancet, a respected British medical journal, uh, that one in ten people uh, remember when they're resuscitated, remember a near-death experiences, and most of them do involve this sense of this light that they perceive. So I I, I suspect that that light is there is experienced by all of us. But in terms of what happens to us after we die. I suspect that that's that that's influenced by by how we live. So we can't become that light if we're if we make shadow. If the light is, as I say, what unites all of us together, and we've been selfish, restricted, materialist, and and all the things that that divide one human being from another, then it's not possible to to merge with that light. And so I suspect that that most of us actually actually come back. That because 
still we have limitation in us that is preventing us from from joining that line. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.